The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. The traditional media and traditional partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle have been working overtime to inflame your passions this week. If I hear the word abortion one more time, I may scream. Uh, But I'm probably going to hear it. So you'll probably hear me scream. But does all of this well-televised fire fury and bedevilment really get us anywhere? No, it just extends and intensifies the hyperpartisanship in both Washington and Sacramento that gets in the way of solving any of the vexing problems facing our nation. My purpose is different. I use this hour, hopefully, to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus on the numbers. The numbers tell me what is out of the norm, what needs attention, what needs immediate triage, and then how to prioritize the necessary changes. In the numbers this week, 18% of American women identify as feminists and 19% of Canadians. Author Mona Charon argues effectively in her book, Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense, that this is a textbook case of the tyranny of the minority. And after that, let's talk about something happy, unanimity, unanimously. That was the vote of the California legislature last week to pass consumer privacy legislation. And if we thought it was important last week, what we learned in the afterglow of Fourth of July fireworks is that our smart TVs are spying on us in addition to social media and that the big purveyors are sharing all that data in order to further manage our thinking. But first, our conversation with Mona Charon, who is one of the most prominent conservative writers in the country. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Useful Idiots. She writes a critically acclaimed syndicated column that appears in more than 200 newspapers and is a former writer for the National Review. She appears regularly on radio and television news shows and is a former panelist of CNN's Capital Gang. After this conversation, I'm sure you're going to want to meet her on Tuesday evening, July 10th, at the Liberty Forum of Silicon Valley. Details and reservations can be found at liberty-forum.us. And if you want that link, 
you can go to the Reimagine America radio page and you'll find the link to get tickets and more information about the event. And I'm sure it will be a sellout, so don't wait too long. Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense is a book every woman should read. Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense is a book that every woman should read. Every woman's going to find pages that are a mirror and that are an an aspiration, an inspiration, and pages that are a caution. Not to mention that it's really well written and at times laugh out loud funny. I am never going to forget the eight-lane superhighway versus the one-lane country road. (laughs) And you and I have both spent enough time at O'Hare to understand the difference between that and a private airport. (laughs) Go ahead. Just to be clear, that was a reference to... Um, the difference between the male brain when it comes to thinking about sex and the female brain when it comes to thinking about, about sex. sex. <laughs> yeah. Despite the attempts of the feminist movement to change that, it's a reality. It is. But what, yeah. what, it's a pesky fact. It, it is a pesky fact. But you know what makes this book exceptional? Just opposed, for example, to Sheryl Sandberg's Leaning In, is that yeah. is the objectivity and the scholarship rather than just emotion and emoting that grounds it long before any of us thought about me too although most of us had experienced some variation of it um mm-hmm. you were really thinking about this i mean this was not when 2014 came around and you wrote a proposal to a publisher to write this book. You'd been thinking about it for a very long time. That is true. My entire adult life, really. Because I, basically, my life tracks with the modern feminist movement. And um, I have been, um, I've been, skeptical of it, I would say, since I was in college, Um, partly because I never accepted the idea that men and women were essentially the same and that only socialization brought out the differences that we see all around us. I was always skeptical about that. And the um, I think the scholarship in the book and my own experiences and observations, I think, make it pretty clear that 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 view is not held up very well. and I was offended by the um, stance that they took regarding abortion. I thought that was, um, you know, for, for a movement that was claiming that they wanted women to use their minds and, and to be respected as individuals and so forth, to say that you had to agree with them on one of the most critical moral and ethical conundrums that faces us as a society to say that, no, this is one area where you're not expected to use your independent judgment or your ethics or your brain, uh, but you're expected to fall in line. Um, and uh, I just couldn't. I felt that it was they did not have the better of the argument that the pro-lifers did. And I said this as somebody who didn't come at it from a religious point of view. I didn't grow up in a particularly religious home, uh, but I was just looking at the question purely based on logic and morality. And um, 
anyway, so there's that. And then finally, the other reason that I felt the feminist movement didn't represent me, and I don't think it represents most women, not their best interests and not their wishes either, is that the feminists of the 70s, as opposed to, say, the suffragettes, who were really just all about equal rights, but the, the feminists of the 70s came out of the new left. They were um, radical in their approach, and they signed on enthusiastically to the sexual revolution and to the destruction of the traditional family. I completely agree with you. And, and to carry that just one step further... For the sake of the audience, let's define what we mean by the term feminism versus what we mean by women's equality and, and, exactly. why, and why that issue, that single horrible issue of abortion, which is so personal to any woman, has, has become such, so definitional and divisive in, in the understanding of the difference between feminism and what you and I would would preach, which is equality of opportunity in the, in the workplace. Right. So um, I, of course, believe in the equality of men and women as a matter of law and as a matter of ethics and as a spiritual matter. Uh, of course, men and women are equal. That doesn't mean that they are the same. And that is a, uh, a distinction that seems to have escaped most of the second wave feminists. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, interesting to go back and look at just how radical some of their views were. For example, in the 1970s, they actually preached that there were no differences other than anatomical differences. There were no differences between men and women other than what was socially constructed. And you still hear this all the time on college campuses. Um, But here's how far they took it. There was a case of a little boy. It was a very tragic situation that this couple had twin sons, and they had them circumcised at the hospital. And in the case of one of the babies, the circumcision was botched, and the child's penis was cut off. So they took this little boy to a particular doctor who was the the doctor who, uh, his name was John Money. He's the one who originated the idea of gender identity. They took these distraught parents, took the child to see him. He said, don't worry, we will just, you know, raise this little boy as a little girl and we will, you know, remove his scrotum and and make a vagina for him and he will be as a little girl. And that's what they did uh, following his advice because at the time it was believed that that would be fine. But throughout this little, and by the way, when he was about eight years old, uh, Dr. Money um, presented this child to the world at a medical conference as a great success. And the New York Times um, reported on the fact that so-called little Brenda was, um, was developing like a normal girl. Um, and that this proved, said the New York Times, that the feminists were right, that if it was all about acculturation. It was all about how you raised a child. And then only later did we find out the truth, which was that this child uh, was miserable being a girl, uh, being raised as a girl, that, that he would tear off the dresses, that he wanted to urinate standing up. And when he was 14, he said to his parents that he was either going to, um, that, that he was going to kill himself. He was so unhappy. And so his parents told him the truth, that, that he had been born a boy. And 
he immediately insisted on having surgeries to reverse what had been done. And, um, but it was, you know, it was a tragic, tragic thing. Eventually, even though he did wind up getting married to a woman and living as a man normally or as normally as he could later in life, the original damage was so deep that he did, in the end, kill himself. Um, now, this story is, I tell this story in the book because it's so illustrative of how disconnected from reality you can get under the influence of a of an ideology you know it's it 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 confounds common sense to imagine that you know you can just raise a little boy as a girl and then he'll just be a girl it's just not true and and as science has shown in the intervening decades and as i repeat in the book there are so many things that we've learned since about the role of hormones in human development and animal studies showing um, differences in behavior between, like, other primates, for example, where these um, behaviors that we associate with humans, where the females are more interested in taking care of babies than the males, and the males are the more sexually aggressive, and so on and so forth. These things are noted in other animals that are close, our close cousins in the animal world. And we've seen... Um, studies that show that right from the very beginning of our lives, in infancy, they can see differences in the way baby girls and baby boys respond to stimuli. So, you know, it's not, it, it was a lie. It is not socially constructed. Um, it, is, it is innate. And these differences affect every aspect of our lives. And rather than pretend something that isn't true, um, that we're androgynous beings, let's acknowledge reality and work within it so that we can be our happiest and best selves. I think that's absolutely the right direction for us as people. I mean, I, I said to you when we first talked on the telephone that a lot of what you wrote in the as I was reading the introduction, I was saying, you know, it's like she's telling my story and we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little bit more about science love and common sense. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with Mona Charon to talk a little bit more about science, love, and common sense and why it matters between the sexes. And when we went to break, we were talking about the amount of science that has demonstrated that there are significant biological differences between the sexes and that they begin in even in infancy. And let's face it, viva la différence. Yes. In the choices, the, in the choices we make in life. Yes. And one of the things I address in this book, I, I tried to um, knock over a lot of the sacred cows that uh, are out there. So one of them was this 77 cents statistic that women only make 77 cents compared to men, which is it's a hard statistic to kill because they keep dragging it out, even though it's been debunked so many times. So I happily debunked it again. You can only get that number if you compare the salaries of all men to the salaries of all women, which is, of course, a meaningless comparison. The only way to judge these things and say it might be the result of discrimination is to look at people 
who are similarly situated. So a woman and a man with the same training and the same education, qualifications, the same time on the job. And then you find that when people are first starting out in their careers, that there's virtually no gender gap in pay. But it does begin to show up when women reach their childbearing years in their 30s and late 20s and 30s, and they begin to cut back at work. And my argument is, you know, this is always presented as a big problem for women, that women are falling behind because of motherhood, and we have to do something about that. And my attitude is, well, wait a minute. I mean, women are choosing this. I certainly chose it. I felt very grateful to have the support of a husband who could work a little harder so that I could work a little less while the kids were young. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to work part-time. Many, many, many married mothers want to work not at all when their kids are young. The plurality wants to work um, part-time as I did. And and the smallest number of all wants to work full-time when their kids are young. Um, so rather than disparaging this and seeing it as a problem, I think we should see it as a strength, that this is, this is one of the benefits of living in a free society where we have enough wealth and enough choices to permit women to, do, um, to follow their wishes, to follow their hearts. And I tell the story about Anne-Marie Slaughter, who um, was a high-ranking State Department official in the Obama administration who wrote a piece for The Atlantic about why women still can't have it all, where she said, oh, you know, it, it, I, was, I had this glamorous job and, you know, so on, but my 14-year-old son was having trouble at home. He was being cared for, by the way, by her husband, but she felt the need to quit her job and go be with her boy. And this was what she needed to do for her own peace of mind and for the health of her family. And um, I say, don't see that as a failure. See that as a strength, that it, it helps families to um, cohere. It helps families to, um, to, it helps people to be happier and healthier and wealthier when families are strong. And... Um, and life is long. I mean, for most of us, we're so fortunate nowadays that we can expect to live long lives. And there's time enough to do everything, to devote yourself to your family for a while and to, uh, and to uh, be full-time workers uh, later or before and after, which, by the way, is the pattern that most women follow. There's a sort of U-shaped pattern where they are heavily into the workforce when they're single and first married, then they drop out a bit or cut back a bit when their kids are young and then they return. And, but, um, and, yeah. and I think that, I think that makes sense, but there are yeah. women and, and you devote a serious amount of the book to the subjects of, um, the corrosive influence of feminism on the sex lives of women and the, the, choices that come out of that in terms of the increased um, uh, unwed motherhood and single women, et cetera, and, and the fact that those women don't have the choices that women um, in, in traditional nuclear marriages have to pull back at that cru- crucial moment when the child needs them the most. And and you spend a certain, a, a considerable amount of time talking about the um, nurturing emotional and even fiscal scars that that leaves on children. 
Yeah, it's been, um, look, at this point in our society, 50% of American children will spend some portion of their childhood in a single-parent home. And everything we know from social science shows us that growing up with a single parent, as heroic and wonderful as they try to be, um, leads to much, much worse outcomes for the kids than growing up with their married parents. And, you know, of course, acknowledging that there are some marriages that are so dysfunctional that they do have to end. Many, many people get divorced for less than drastic problems, and that's a a huge problem for the children. Um, And many, many women now are having children without getting married at all, which is um, those kids have the worst uh, predicted outcomes. And this is partly the result of the feminist decision to endorse free, you know, much easier divorce, you know, fault-free divorce, no-fault divorce. It was the result of their decision to sign on to the sexual revolution, which they thought was going to be a great boon to women, freeing them up to, you know, have fun and enjoy themselves sexually just as much as men always had, they said. And... You know, if you if you look at where that's gotten us, it's it's gotten us to a place where marriage is no longer the norm, and women are um, less able to control the demand, the sexual demands of men, because they have no social support for that position. Um, and there's a there's a huge the other the other thing that happens when so many children are raised by single parents is that it really damages the men, the young men who are raised in these homes more than the women. So it hurts both. Um, Girls have more problems when they're raised without their dads, lower self-esteem, for example, more problems with obesity, a lot of other things um, than they do with their dads at home. Um, But for boys, it's even worse. If you compare boys and girls, brothers and sisters who are raised without fathers, the boys are, when they are grown, they are less likely to be employed, less likely to go to college, more likely to get in trouble with the law, um, and more likely to be addicted to drugs uh, than boys who grow up with their, with their fathers in the home. And, um, and one other thing I'll just add is that there are so many aspects of the nuclear family that we don't even understand how they work. So, for example... Babies, they used to take babies away from mothers when they were premature and put them in incubators. Mm-hmm. And then they figured out that just the skin-to-skin contact between a mother and an infant is enough to help the baby stabilize its body temperature far better than any incubator could ever do. And similarly with fathers, um, when fathers roughhouse with their children, it seems to have a very beneficial effect for boys especially to learn to control their emotions, for boys to learn to control their aggression. You know, they, they need that roughhousing that happens when they're very, very young. And um, so, you know, we tamper with these ancient um, arrangements at our own peril. There are all kinds of aspects of life aspects of child rearing that mothers and fathers bring to it that are complementary. Women tend to be more protective. Men tend to be more challenging to their children. 
Um, and uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, this is so important. Men, when, when a dad is in the home, the children are far less likely to suffer from depression and they have better self-esteem, this is true of boys and girls, than those who are not raised with their dads. And that's why this crisis that we've created of so many single-parent homes um, is, uh, is one that has, um, is, it, it's really a slow-motion disaster for, for many, many families. And, and as we look to conclude this conversation with Mona Charon about why sex matters in biology and in love and marriage, let's talk for just a moment about what we would do or what we should do as a society to begin to turn the corner on um, the damage that has been done uh, especially as we, for diverging into politics for a moment, when we see the emer- the merging of the feminist movement in its worst connotations, and the victimization movement in terms of terms of left wing politics in the United States, how do we bring the family back into fashion? So one thing we have to keep pointing out is that people say, oh, you know, you're talking about the family. You want to, you know, you want to send women back into the kitchen and the bedroom. You want a handmaid's tale, like, you know, and so forth. This is so preposterous. <laughs> the, it, what, we are, what we are saying is that everyone would be better off if the bottom two-thirds of the American population, that is those who do not have college degrees, were to follow the life sequence that is currently being followed by the upper third, where the people who have college educations and um, more wealth, what do they do? They follow what the sociologists call the success sequence. They finish their education, they get a job, they get married, and they have children in that order. And they tend to stay married. The divorce rate tends to be among the less educated, the high divorce rate. And so we're not saying go back. We're saying imitate all of these doctors and accountants and lawyers uh, who are currently doing it in a way that ensures that their kids are going to have a much better shot at life. And this will go a long way, first of all, toward making people happier. And second, it will go a long way toward dealing with the um, income inequality that has become such a pronounced feature of our uh, society today and that worries a lot of people and justly so well part of the reason we should worry is that when you're not married you don't accumulate wealth the way married people do um, that's just a small piece of it it's it's much broader and um, when I'm out in Silicon Valley I look forward to getting more deeply into these and and other aspects of the book and I was just gonna say if you want to learn more about Mona Charon's research and you want to understand the issues of why sex matters and what the problem is with modern feminism, you'll find her at the Liberty Forum in Mountain View on Tuesday evening, and you will, and that is libertyforum.us uh, on the web for reservations, or you can go to reimagineamerica.org and we'll give you a link so that you can get a ticket to see this, to enjoy this amazing evening. And Mona, thank you so much. And I so appreciate your time. And I am looking forward to meeting you on Tuesday at the Liberty Forum in Mountain View. Me too. Can't wait. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, 
Back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. Well, as I said in the introduction, and I mentioned last week, the California legislature has done something truly unexpected. It actually got unanimous agreement on a piece of legislation, and the governor quickly signed it. So while it's very important to note a unanimous decision, that should not that should not for a moment say uh, that it's, um, it's, it's a uh, signal that there's been a major change in uh, California politics because that's not the case. So what the state legislature passed is a data privacy act aimed at giving consumers more control over how companies collect and manage their personal information. It's a proposal that Google, Facebook, Equifax, and other big companies have long opposed and have fought at the national level. So one of the things you have to understand about what we're about to talk about is that it applies only to California. I'm predicting that the consumer privacy legislation that California passed last week will be a litigation goldmine even before it goes into effect in 2020, and for many years thereafter. If you have kids in law school or you're contemplating going to law school, I think this law will open a whole new segment of legal practice around privacy and privacy rights and the definition of privacy. Because remember, one of the big arguments in the current debate about who should sit on the Supreme Court is is the right to privacy, except that that right's not mentioned in the Constitution. And so the definition of it is, um, is a matter of uh, considerable litigation, has been uh, for 50 years, and will continue to be so, more so, under this legislation. And the reason for that, just before we think about taking a quick commercial break, The reason for that is that this law has more loopholes in it than really high-quality Swiss cheese. Yes. And did you know, for just a quick aside, that one of the things that California exports to Mexico that's going to be impacted by the president's tariff decisions is cheese. Cheese is one of California's biggest exports to Mexico. So, It seems appropriate that we should pass a consumer privacy law that has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. And this is how, aha, this is how it's the Swiss cheese that got it through the state legislature with a unanimous voice vote. So just after we go to commercial break, we're going to come back and tell you what those holes are and how they affect you. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back to talk about what is called the California Consumer Privacy Act. The California State Legislature has been arguing about consumer privacy 
the right to protect your data because um, you own it. Privacy is something that belongs to you um, under Supreme Court decisions, even if it's not written into the Constitution. And in two and a half years of argument, they couldn't come up with a bill. Never came out of committee. And then suddenly, suddenly, in the last three months, it got to be a priority to pass this legislation, which was largely written in the seven days before it was passed. So, again, this is a litigator's goldmine. But another thing that we should all stop and think about is what it proves. How did it come to be? That bill passed in one week in order to prevent a more rigid and less uh, amendable uh, consumer-based, voter-driven initiative from passing onto the uh, November ballot. In other words, I don't know that I said that particularly well, but what it proved was the power of a single millionaire with the willingness to spend some of his own money to move California politics. One person, one person created legislation that every single one of 33 or 34 million Californians will have to live with. It was a real estate developer by the name of McAllister McTaggart who has no expertise in privacy law, but enough money to fund his own pet projects. He valued his privacy enough to spend $3 million getting an initiative qualified for the ballot and funding a supporting campaign. And the legislature saw the folly of one man's version of consumer privacy, making it into the state constitution. If it makes it into the state constitution, then it takes another constitutional amendment to change it. So passing a law which would face numerous court tests, but would then allow with the guidance of the court for modification through the legislative process became the preferred alternative. And that is how we got the California Consumer Privacy Act written in set, but but it was written again in seven days. Okay, so I am going to give you a a quick overview of what it does and doesn't do. um, And my thanks to Fast Company's uh, Sean Captain, who captured the five principal um, components of this bill. And we can go through them in about five minutes. So here's the deal. Any company is allowed to compile and sell any amount of your private data until the clock strikes midnight on December 31st, 2019. So you should expect big demand for data, for your data, up to the moment that that pipe is closed. Because once a third party, once an application that, that sucked it out of Facebook, for example, once a third party has your data, think about partisan political um, campaign efforts. Uh, God knows those that are um, funded by offshore uh, interests, in other words, foreign governments. It's not just the Russians. Um, once a third party has your data, 
there's no way for you to retrieve it under this law. So, up until December 31st, midnight, 2019, they're going to be selling all the data they can suck out of your use of the internet and your use of a smart television. Because that data, the privacy contained in that data is lost to you forever. So on January 1st, 2020, you can opt out. But the service provider cannot discriminate against you by, by denying you goods or services, charging you different prices or rates, or providing a different level of quality because you opted out. That is the answer to Sheryl Sandberg's threat to charge for basic Facebook if Facebook can't sell the user's private data. Another way to say that is you, you are the product. But I remember this is Swiss cheese, so they can't sell your data except when they can. Because, you know, we all do need to work to keep Cheryl in liveried servant lifestyle to which she is accustomed. So because Facebook at all, you know, Facebook, Google, whatever, can charge the opt-outer a user fee, they can charge a user fee under this law when, and I'm going to quote, when reasonably related to the value provided to the consumer by the consumer's data. Now, what do you think that circular statement means? I think it means that they think they could charge if you don't want to give them your data for free because that data has some value. You can opt out. They're not supposed to be able to discriminate against you because you opted out, but they will. I think that phrase, that circular phrase, when reasonably related to the value provided to the consumer by the consumer's data, what the heck does that mean? That that phrase is a legal industry in the making. I mean, there will be a whole body of law and it's going to be super lucrative whether you are a plaintiff or defendant's attorney. But <clears throat> unscientifically, I did a little survey last week. I asked a whole bunch of people that I know or that I happen to run into in the grocery store, for example, would you pay to use Facebook? And you know how many people said yes, they'd pay to use F Facebook? Zero. So while my study was not scientific, it was fairly broad and it was certainly non-selective in terms of the respondents. And I never found anybody from 18 to 80 who was willing to pay to use Facebook. In fact, a lot of people thought it would be a great idea if it went away because they wouldn't waste time holding their phones in their hand doing in, um, noxious things. But just in case that you are wedded to Facebook, the law allows the service provider to pay the consumer for opting in to having their private data collected and sold. So I ask you, what is the monetary value of your privacy to you? How much are you willing to be paid to forego that privacy? And again, and again, I think it's going to be incredibly lucrative.
But here's the bad news. Here is the, the really bad news, that unlike the EU's new consumer privacy protections, the California Consumer Privacy Act does not have any provision to allow a person, uh, the opt-outer, as I like to call, to be forgotten by the Internet. If somebody else posts pictures of you, if somebody else posts your biography, if somebody else insults you on the Internet, you have no right of recourse under this California consumer privacy law. That's the news in brief. That's how you get something passed unanimously by the California state legislature is you create circular litigation-bound Swiss cheese. And we'll be back in just a moment with a few closing thoughts. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And speaking of the need for what will be after California's Consumer Privacy Act, a need for some form of congressional action, since one state, uh, especially the state that is home to so many of the biggest purveyors of data, um, cannot make national law. Uh, the California action this week, the legislature's action last week, should prompt Congress to begin to look at a national consumer privacy law. But don't hold your breath, because Congress doesn't seem to be able to do anything. And so it's hard at the conclusion of this show to say, I can't turn on the TV without seeing pictures and stories about migrant children from Central America and about their mothers. So it wouldn't surprise you that I read a, a story on the Internet that began, the U.S. saw a rapid increase in the number of children crossing into the U.S. illegally, most of them from Central America in the spring and summer. <clears throat> the number of women and children reaching a crisis point. Now, that wouldn't surprise you until you read the last phrase in that sentence during the fiscal year 2014. It seems that since 2008, when a refugee protection bill was passed by Congress and signed by President Bush, Congress has been unable, unable and unwilling to find a compromise to protect the southern border to take care of those who really need our help, and to do the things we need to do with our Latin American neighbors, Mexico and Central America, to create a better world for those people so they don't have to make this incredibly dangerous and highly um, unsuccessful journey north. We're, we're turning back 80% of them and deporting them. Um, and have been since 2014. President Obama in the Latino community was known as the um, deporter-in-chief. The difference is the way in which the press is covering this. So, two cautions. Don't believe everything. Don't believe everything that people, um, that reporters tell you mothers are telling them and don't believe everything the mothers say and understand that the policy that, that Health and Human Services is following 
to reunite these families is no different than what it has been doing since the first wave in 2014. They fingerprint and they use DNA to make sure they are giving children to parents and not to smugglers and human traffickers. And on that note, I want you to say a prayer for the kids in Thailand who are being pulled out of this cave uh, where they were trapped by water verily as we speak. They have four out so far, knock on wood. Uh, that means nine to go, and we should all pray for them. And in the meantime, I'll look forward to seeing many of you at the Liberty Forum uh, at two, on Tuesday night or joining you again next week when we'll be talking about President Trump's tariff the possibility of a trade war, and the immediate impact of, a, of the retaliatory tariffs uh, on the Pacific Rim states alone. I can't, I can't cover the whole country, but I certainly, um, you will be interested to know, i like to give you a little preview, that um, one of the big exports from California to the rest of the, of the world, to Mexico, to Canada, to China, to the EU— is cosmetic products. So on that note, have a great afternoon. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.